Yeah, well, thank you, Kevin. I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Thank you for making your way here to GPC this morning. If you're listening online later, thank you for doing that. I hope you have a great Easter uh, Sunday and great Easter celebration. Uh, let me ask you a question. When's the last time that you've heard some really good news? Like, she said yes, good news, or it's a boy, or it's a girl, good news, or I got the job, or I got the promotion kind of good news. And when's the last time you've heard a kind of good news that makes you kind of transcend the mundane day-to-day and takes you to kind of another level? And then let me ask you this further, right on the heels of that, um, when is the last time that you have felt that that news has been short-lived, ultimately? <laughs> in the scope of life, that while the good news may have come, you have to wake up in the morning and go to work with a boss who might be a challenge, or you have to go to school with someone who brings you down, or you have a family event later on, even maybe today for some of us, and we may not be looking forward to it depending on how the day is going or the family dynamic is going. When is the last time that good news carried so much transcendence for you that it carried through even some of the most challenging moments that we all live in? And I'm finding as I get older, which surprisingly happens to me, maybe it happens to you as well, that it is maybe easier for me to look at life sometimes feeling like the true narrative of life is bad news or hard news interrupted by some moments of good news, but ultimately returning to some hard news at the end of the day. If you've been tracking with the church at all or with me or what have you, if you know me at all, you know that the last several months of my life I've had good friends who are going through significant challenges. And it's been a weight on them and on me to walk through some challenges of various kinds. And I felt that weight. I felt that burden for, well, now over six months at least very directly. It's impacted our family recently here as well that there's a weight, a personal weight to life that we carry when things get real and when things get hard and they get heavy. Just what Pastor Kevin mentioned this morning, our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka who are gathering like we are for Easter service only to have suicide bombers in their midst blow themselves up this morning in another part of our world. And so we grieve with that and we realize this is a part of our world. And so I ask you, when is the last time you've had good news carry and transcend you? And is it even possible that good news can actually carry the weight of our soul through the turbulent waves of life that come all the time. And here's the thing that um, each of us has a different reaction or different experience to things we call good news. We gather this morning on Easter Sunday because we believe, Christians believe, that, that they have something called good news. On Easter Sunday, the narrative is that God, sovereign God, sent Jesus, his one and only Son, to earth in a time and space period of time to die on the cross for me and for you so that our sins can be forgiven, that by believing in Jesus, we can have eternal life in heaven with God and be eternally uh, in that space of relationship with God and with one another who believe also in Jesus. That is good news. Now, the question is, if I actually believe that, how would that impact the day-to-day that I experience? So I know this morning in this room, and I'm sure listening online later, that not all of us share that story. In fact, not all of us would raise our hand and say, I believe what you just said, Tim. Some of you might say, I used to believe that, but I'm not sure I can anymore because of some of the very reasons that you mentioned. Some of the pain and evil in this world I have detached from that narrative. It's too idealistic. It doesn't actually work. 
Some of you believe it still and are holding that, which is great. But I might ask you this morning, if you can for a minute, just imagine, just imagine for a minute if that narrative were actually true. And again, I want to acknowledge not everyone in this room maybe believes that, but if you can, just give me a minute. And imagine for a minute if that news was actually true, that Jesus was a real being who came from God to die on your behalf that your sins may be forgiven, and you can have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Imagine just for a minute if that were actually true. I would ask this question, is there any better news than that if it were true? Is there any better news that one could have to hear that God, if there is indeed a God, that a God could look down on you and me in the very state that we are in right now with all the worry, anxiety, grief, sin, pain, abuse of our background and say, you, as you are right now, sitting here, listening now, I accept you. No more striving, no more working, no more moralism, nothing else. I accept you. What about my history? I know about the history. Not only do I accept you, I died while you still were dealing with that. I love you. Imagine for a minute if that actually were true. Could there be any better news? See, Christians for generations have believed that to be true, which is why Christians are said to be people of good news. They carry good news into their workplace, into their neighborhoods, into their schools, into their communities. People of good news, if you have people living around you who are people of good news, here's what I believe should happen. That if you're a person who carries good news, that the people who live near you, the people who work with you, the people who go to school with you, here's what they should say when they see you if you're a person of good news. Wow, I'm glad you are here. Christian, you're moving into the neighborhood. I am so glad that I live near Christians. I am so glad. I am so glad that I have classmates who are Christians. I am so glad that my business is run by a Christian businessman, a Christian businesswoman. I am so glad because I live under the blessing and service of someone who carries good news. Because good news isn't just an idea. It isn't just a philosophy. Good news changes lives in the day today. Now you may be asking, I would ask you, when is the last time that you have heard someone who doesn't believe in Jesus react that way to Christians who live near them, or to Christians who work for them, or to Christians who are in school with them? You may say, never. I might say you might be right. Because here's the thing about good news. If you can imagine good news as a thing, in fact, I want you to imagine it for a minute like a Lego block. I learned this week that there's a thing called being a Lego artist. Did you know that? Lego artist. So, so there's a guy who's a Lego artist, and here's one of the things that he built. That doesn't look very awesome, does it? But he built this thing. I think it was last year he built this. And what he does is he takes it and he builds this thing and puts it on a stand, and then he spins the stand around. And the art isn't actually in what you see here, but I want you to imagine for a minute if this Lego art were what I'm going to call the good news. That if that is materially represented as good news, every one of us looks at the good news from our perspective. Everyone looks at this Lego block from their perspective, and here's the beauty of this art. The beauty isn't in what you see, but it is on the light that is cast onto it and the shadow that it creates. When you cast light on this, it becomes, on the background, 
a jet airplane, which is pretty cool. And then this guy spins it around, and then this very same piece also becomes a butterfly. And then he spins it one more time, it actually becomes a fire-breathing dragon. The same piece spun from different angles because your perspective on what you see changes, but the very nature of the thing doesn't. And so I know this morning, if you were to consider the good news as our Lego block, that some of you have grown up in church. You've grown up experiencing the good news in a particular direction. The light that you cast on the good news is this, that I must come, I must attend, I need to go, I need to be moral, I need to be right, I need to line up, everything needs to be right. And this is the light that you cast on the good news, and that is the shadow on the back wall that you see. Some of you have grown up outside of the church or in it and then removed recently because what you see in that is you see a weight and a heaviness of a moralism, not a freedom of grace and forgiveness. You feel the weight of it and you look and what you see is you see through your perspective, you see people who are judgmental, people who are hypocritical. You don't see actually good news, you see bad news and ridiculousness. Why do people do this crazy stuff that Christians do? Because that is the light that you shine on it. And I'm not blaming you. In fact, if I were in your shoes and if I had your experiences, I would probably see it the exact same way. Because the perspective that you have on the good news impacts how you actually see it. And so what I want all of us to do in this series that we're calling Good News, that we're starting on this Easter Sunday morning, is to take our preconceptions of what the good news of Jesus actually is and just for a moment, just kind of take it and set it over here for a minute. You can pick it back up if you get nervous. No need to get too far away from it. But I want you to consider, what if, what if the good news of how you have understood the good news, whether from a perspective of growing up in the church or growing up outside of the church, what if the perspective is because it has been how you have been raised to see it or your unique experiences, what if there's a way to turn it, to see something different that you've never seen before, the richness the good news might actually change your life, might actually change your community, might actually change your school, might revolutionize how you do business, and might reinvigorate your faith that maybe has grown cold. What if? So for eight weeks, I want to talk about good news, the way that it can change us if we see the richness of it. And to begin, I want to take you to the author of the good news himself, to Jesus. When Jesus came to the planet, he laid out, here is the good news that I have come for. So I know of no better place to start than to start by looking at the one who said, I have come to bring good news and dive right in. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. If you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew near you. That's our gift to you. Um, If you have it on your device, just look up Luke. Um, Luke is going to be in the right two-thirds of your Bible. It's in the portion of the Scriptures we call the New Testament. And um, you'll find it as Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, the third book in the New Testament. Luke chapter 4, and we pick up the story of Jesus here as he's just kind of getting landing, if you will, on the the planet, so to speak. Sounds like I just made him into an airplane. That's not what I mean. But Jesus is coming, and he's... His fame is growing, his ministry has begun, and uh, he's returning to Galilee. So we'll pick it up in chapter 4, verse 14, Luke chapter 4. And in verse 14 we read this, that Jesus returned to Galilee, which is a section of Israel, 
in the power of the Spirit, and news, just general news, about him spread through the whole countryside. Because he'd already been doing miracles and teaching, and it was teaching with power that people hadn't seen before. It was pretty amazing. And he taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. And then, verse 16, he went to Nazareth, which is his hometown, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And then he stood up to read. Now, you should know briefly here in verses 14 to 16 that synagogues were uh, set up during the um, Old Testament time. Uh, when the temple was no longer available and worship had to happen more informally, people kind of set up, we'll call them maybe house churches today, but synagogues were more informal gatherings of people who still wanted to worship, but they didn't have a temple. And so in those, it was kind of fairly common for people to walk in, and if there was a guest um, walking into town, you might just say, like you might do in a small group or a, you know, a, a dinner party you might be having, if someone walks in who you don't expect, you might just give them the floor for a minute. Say, hey, Hey, you're coming from wherever, you know, what's the news from your part of the world? Um, you know, share with us what's going on. So there's a natural platform for someone to speak in a synagogue who is a guest. Jesus certainly fits the bill. He walks in, gets up to speak in verse 16. Here's verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Okay, so Jesus gets a scroll from what we now call the Old Testament, and it was handed to him. So unrolling it, He's found the place where it is written. In other words, he's looking for something. In particular, he's trying to find a passage that would help people understand why in the world have I come. And here's what he says in verse 18. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach, and here's our word, good news, our phrase, good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, here's what's happening, in case you don't, um, haven't studied up on the year of Jubilee as you've walked into the service this morning, which I'm not sure if any of us have, which is okay, we'll give you a pass on that. But Jesus finishes this in verse 19, he, he finishes his quotation by saying, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's his last line. This is an incredibly important metaphor for us to understand. And so in order to get our minds around it, I want you to hold a finger, if you will, in Luke 4. I want you to turn back in your Bible to earlier part of your Bible, to the third book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, then Leviticus. Can you turn to Leviticus for me? Leviticus chapter 25. Again, keeping your finger in Luke. What Jesus is referring to here, the year of the Lord's favor, is actually a year. This is what the Jews would call the year of Jubilee. And to understand the weight of what Jesus is saying, you've got to get in the mindset of how it would have been understood. The year of Jubilee, as you get to Leviticus 25, I'll read there in a minute, but the year of Jubilee is actually a year that happens every 50th year. There are seven years of um, rhythms that God has set in place for the people of the Old Testament, a seven-year cycle that will end in rest. And then what God laid down was after every seventh cycle, so seven times seven is 49, that year between 49 and actually year 50 would be considered the 50th year. After seven cycles of seven years, you will have a year of jubilee, year number 50, which is technically beginning at year 49 into 50, okay? And in year 50, I want you, God is saying, and you will read it in Leviticus, I want you to rest. In fact, I want you to reset everything socially, 
culturally, economically. I want you to reset everything. And in that year of reset, like land will go back to who owns it. If you've been sold yourself as a slave because you had to pay off a debt, you are no longer a slave anymore. Slavery will not go on in perpetuity forever and ever and ever. There is an end game. And in that year, I don't even actually want you to plant any um, harvest, any grain or anything, I'm going to provide for you. So that 50th year is meant to be a year to reset everything. This is a total cultural and societal reset to remind everybody you serve under the God who is in charge and in control of everything. So here's what we read in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8. Uh, reading for a couple of verses here. He says, Count off every seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The fiftieth year shall be a year of jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee, and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property, meaning not that you went away on vacation, but that if I owned property in my family that I had to sell because I got in trouble, my family gets the rights to that land back. So if I was in trouble and I made a bad financial decision and I needed bailed out, I could, but it won't impact my kids. They won't have to suffer for my ignorance or my foolishness. They get back to the land that they were raised on. Verse 14, if you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your own people on the basis of the number of years since the Jubilee. And you are to sell to you, and they are to sell to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. When the years are many, you are to increase the price, and when the years are few, you are to decrease the price, because what is really being sold to you is the number of crops. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. In other words, if we are starting the calendar on year one, and I have a piece of land, I want to sell it to you for $50,000, I can do that on year one, but by year 10, it's only worth 40000 and by year 20, it's only worth thirty and 20 and 10, as you can do the math, that the value of the property diminishes as we get closer to that year of Jubilee. Now, here's why that matters. That the good news that Jesus is proclaiming, as you look back in Luke, you can go back to Luke, you can leave Leviticus for now. He pulls up this prophecy from Isaiah and he's saying, this is about me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, send, uh, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, that this is what I'm here for. And what Jesus is alluding to is this moment in Israel's history where everything changes, not just on ideas, it's not just as if the nation of Israel gets together and teaches one another and has revival meetings as if that's the only thing that they do. They're not impacted by ideas and teaching points. They are changed societally. Real estate changes hands. Business plans get altered. Relationships are changed. In other words, the news impacts not just my brain and not just ideas, but it actually impacts life. It impacts my culture. It impacts my community. It impacts my neighborhood. It impacts how in the world we live together in space and time history now. It isn't just salvation for the future later. 
And so this good news that Jesus has come to proclaim isn't just individual salvation for people later on. This isn't just fire insurance for hell. This is meant to be built on the metaphor, the primary concept of this is changing how a community even functions with one another together. That every business leader, every neighborhood, every person who employs somebody, anyone who relates to one another in terms of debt and debt or relationship, all of these things are impacted by the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And then he goes on, and here's what he does back in Luke. He goes on. He sits down. In verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, period. Now, what the committed Jew would have known in that time is that Jesus stopped his reading. He made a decision to stop reading at some point. It's very important to understand where he stopped. Because in Isaiah, the very next thing that happens in Isaiah, like to quote Isaiah, this phrase I have up here that says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, this is in, in Luke but it also is a direct quote from Isaiah 61 that Jesus is quoting. Isaiah 61 continues the very next phrase. The very next phrase says this, and the day of vengeance of our God. This would have been in Jesus' line of sight when he's holding the scroll in the synagogue standing there. It is the very next thing to read. Jesus stops, and he doesn't read this part. He puts it down. Why would he do that? Because Jesus didn't come to bring vengeance. Jesus didn't come for that. He didn't come for any other reason except to seek and to save the lost. Paul writes later in the New Testament, he says, Do you not know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? In other words, it's not the judgment of God. It's not that you've been good enough. It's not that you've obeyed enough. It's not that you've been right enough with the law. That doesn't lead you to repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. One of the famous verses that you know, certainly know, is John 3.16. For God so hated the world, right? For God was so vengeful with the world that he gave his only son, right? I mean, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You know that. That whoever believes in him should not perish. Why? Because Jesus didn't come. He stopped reading. He saw this phrase and knew, I'm done. I'm done before the vengeance part. I'm here to proclaim the year of Jubilee. And for those of us who have been raised in church who see the Lego block through a particular lens, it is not difficult to see that lens as a lens of judgmental peace, of, of a need to follow the rules, of a need to create something that is anything less than grace, grace, and more grace. And Jesus stops, and he stops reading, he's sat down. Verse 20 in Luke chapter 4. And then the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, rightly so. Now what's he going to say? And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This Greek word today actually means the dawn of a new era. This isn't just, hey, it's you know, Saturday, just it's happening on Saturdays. Actually, no. Today, a Savior is born, who is Christ the Lord. This kind of big moment, the dawn of a new era. He's saying, today is a new era. The scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And Jesus knows what's going on in the crowd. And verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. But then they asked this question, isn't this Joseph's son? 
which is another way of saying, wait a minute, you grew up here, I'm not sure I believe you. Like, you grew up here, I know who you are, I know who your mom and dad are, I know that what you did when you were a kid, man, I know what things were like around you. Like, isn't this just, like, I know this person. There's no way that they are the one who is starting the dawn of a new age, that they are the one who's the fulfillment of the prophecy. There's no way, isn't this Joseph's son? And Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. In other words, he knows they're saying, prove it. He's saying, they're saying, hey, if you're the physician, heal yourself first. Like, if this is what you are going to be about, then show us. Prove it to us. To which Jesus says this in verse 24, and this is where it starts to get messy. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. So there's many widows in Israel. Elijah not sent to any of them, but sent to a widow in Zarephath. And, verse 27, there were many in Israel with leprosy, not just widows, but people who needed help in Israel, who were in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet none of them, not one of them, was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Remember people? Remember those seated in front of me in the synagogue? Remember? Remember that Elijah story? You know the story, certainly, because you know the Old Testament. You know the Old Testament scriptures. Remember all the widows in Israel? Yeah, they didn't, yeah, Elijah didn't help them. Only that one from Zarephath. Oh, remember, oh, Elisha? Remember all the people who had leprosy in, in Israel? Maybe some of your grandparents or some of them? Remember Elisha didn't help actually any of them at all, but went to Naaman the Syrian? What's he saying? <laughs> that the good news... The good news doesn't just come for Israel. That's what Jesus is saying. The good news doesn't just come to the religious. In fact, that's not what the good news is for. The good news isn't just for those who are within the walls. The good news isn't just for those who already have some great things going for them. The good news actually fundamentally is for those who realize they need good news in the first place. The good news, first of all, is for those who are, what Jesus already said in Isaiah 61, those are poor, oppressed, struggling, needing help. And these people who are seated here in the synagogue, they went from verse 22, all spoke well of him, to verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. I've had some negative reactions to things I've said, but never quite that far. Thankfully, we don't have a cliff right nearby here. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is amazing. That the people who were seated there went from, hey, he has amazing things to say, to we're ready to kill him. In a matter of moments. And what was the turning point for them? When Jesus made it clear, hey, good news, everybody. The good news, I've come to proclaim the good news. And after he said that, man, everyone would thought, that's awesome. Man, you're here for good news. We all love good news. Oh, by the way, by the way, one minor detail, one minor point of detail. The good news comes not just for you in this room, in the synagogue, but for those who are not even here and are afraid to come, or who you will not welcome here. That's, by the way, who I'm first coming for. (laughs) That's where people get so angry in the synagogue and are ready to kill him. You know, 
one of the things that we've been working toward at Grace Point Church in the last, oh, I don't know, years, we've been building on the history of a church that, by the way, has been around since, a little trivia, since 1735. as longer than most of us have been alive. And that church history comes with some incredible strength and grit and character of both good and bad, both challenges and wins. It's part of a history that long. It's amazing. But if you ever wonder, why do we care so much about people in our community who are not a part of this church locally? If you ever wonder, why do we give so much for those who are not seated in these rows Why do we care so much? Why do we invest so much? Why is so much of our budget going to support things that are even outside of the programs and ministries of this local body? I want to invite you to look no further than the beginning of why Jesus said he came to bring good news. Because good news changes people, not the people who are in the synagogue, not the people who are right there. Those people wanted to kill him. The good news came to change cultures. It came like the year of Jubilee to reinvent communities, to do more than be an idea of teaching, but came to be a game changer for how we relate socially, economically, together, how our neighborhoods are even built, the very fiber and fabric of how we help one another with transportation needs, with health needs, with education needs, with all of what makes up a healthy, functioning society. The year of Jubilee was meant to restart, reset, so that the sins, if you will, of the fathers and the previous generations do not get visited upon the next generations. The foolishness of dad who sold the family business, who sold the real estate because he got into an addiction problem, doesn't visit itself upon the future of the next generation. The things that our parents did and our grandparents said, don't continue to come down on us because God has redeemed us from that. And not just an idea of redemption, but a real time and space place of a year of jubilee. The good news meets us at work and at school in my neighborhood with raising my kids. If you ever want to know why we do this, this is why. But here's the problem. The good news is only good news to those who have something to gain from it. Good news is really only good news for people who realize that. Otherwise, it's bad news. The good news of Jesus who came for the poor, the oppressed, those who are struggling, is great news for those who see themselves as poor, oppressed, struggling to find God on their own. But it isn't good news for people who see that Lego block through one lens of, darn it, I'm going to be good enough. I'm going to be consistent enough. My family is faithful enough. God semi-owes it to me to be loving enough to me. See, Jesus' version of good news is actually bad news for the most religious. It is. Jesus' version of good news is actually bad news for the most religious, which is exactly why people wanted to kill him. Because Jesus' version of good news isn't just a concept of an idea of a teaching principle that we should get down. Jesus' version of good news isn't just here's something that I want you to learn and understand. Jesus' version of good news isn't even just individual salvation for later. Jesus' version of good news is a transformation of a society, of a space and time and place history now that the world will see, oh, you're a a Christian? I am so glad 
that you are in my school. I am so glad that you run the business the way you do. I am so glad that you are here because Christians bring good news. And I see it, and I feel it, and I experience it. Jesus wasn't just a teacher. Because teachers, by the way, don't die for good ideas. I don't have any teacher who would die for a good idea. But I do know of leaders who will die for a cause or a movement. And Jesus wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't here just to tell us what to believe principally about who God is and to inject our brain with theory about God and how to connect with him. Jesus came as the leader of a brand new movement of a new way to relate to God called the New Covenant. And when that is on the chopping block, Jesus is willing to die, to put his life on the line, to create that new movement called the New Covenant that launches the church, that is the vehicle by which God spreads the good news into their into our communities. And so on this Easter Sunday, as we come around to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we do so because he wasn't just a teacher with a good idea. Teachers don't die for ideas. Leaders of movements die for their ideas. He created a new movement, a new, new group of people under the new covenant. And he did, in fact, die. His body was put on the cross. His hands and feet nailed body laid in the tomb, and three days later, Christians believe he was resurrected to new life. That is what Christians believe. That is good news. And if you have seen it as anything but good news, it could be that it's time, it could be that we need to turn it a little bit in your mind. It could be that we need to shift it so that you see what Jesus actually came to bring. That's what I hope this series will do for you. This morning, we get to celebrate communion together. It's the moment where we get to take the bread and the cup, a reminder that Jesus didn't come just to teach, but to physically be in time and space place with you and with me. In a moment, I'm going to pray for us as we anticipate prepping for that, but here's what I want to do. I want you to imagine for a minute. I asked at the beginning to imagine. I said, imagine if the good news were actually true. Imagine if Jesus actually did come to die. Imagine if Jesus actually did come to die for your sins and that God actually accepts you for who you are. And I acknowledge not everyone in the room is going to believe that. And thank you for playing along for a little bit. But imagine for a minute, imagine for a minute what it would actually feel like in the home that you live in, in the relationship that you have with your spouse, your significant other, and the kids that you're trying to raise. Imagine what it would feel like in the business that you're in in the school that you attend, in the workplace that you go to, imagine for a minute what it would take for the people around you tomorrow morning, this week, in this season, to say, you know, wow, you're a Christian, right? I am so glad, so glad that you are bringing the good news. I'm so glad. It is good news when I see you. Thank you for being the good news for me and my family, and providing us what we need. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus is willing to die for on the cross. It's a conversation I want to continue next week as we look at both the religious and irreligious, and we all need God. For now, let me pray for us, and then we're going to get ready to take communion together.
Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time to be together here on Easter and to come around this idea that you have come and to look at your words, that you've come to bring good news to the poor, to bring recovery of sight to the blind, to free those who are are in captivity, that you have come to bring a good news, a nature of good news that's not just an idea but is indeed a practical change of life and relationship with one another and with our communities. So I pray now as we take this bread and cup and we are reminded of the moment before you died when you were with your disciples in a room we call the upper room and you gave the bread, you tore it apart and gave it to your disciples telling them, hey, this is a a symbol of my body that's about to be broken for you. Take and eat. Know that I have given all of me to you. And then later you gave the cup, and in the giving of the cup, said, this is my blood that's poured out for you. You're telling us, you you have come. You've, You've come to die to be broken for us, that your life is given for us. And so I pray that as as we share in that moment today, as we eat and drink and the tangible touch of the bread and the taste of the the juice in our mouth would be a reminder that you have come to help us allow people both to taste, to touch, to see the good news of Jesus, which is exactly what you did for us. So Father, we thank you that we can share in this time together and we pray that you would continue to renew in us a passion for how the good news looks in our workplace, in our schools, in our relationships. We thank you that you so love the world that you gave your only son to die for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.